If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Unexplained, Season 5, Episode 11, Destination Unknown, Part 2. Kate gazed up at the stars as the boat gently glided across the ocean. The dead calm waters were a marked contrast from the treacherous weather of the last few days, and as Kate's husband Mark slept below deck, She was grateful for this quiet moment of solitude. For the past few weeks, Kate had been learning the constellations of the night sky and was enjoying testing herself on one of the clearest nights in days when she spotted something unexpected, an orange speck just above the horizon to the north. Perhaps it was Mars, she thought, as she looked about for any other sign of the red planet, then turned back to find much to her confusion that the orange speck was now moving directly toward her. It was only then she realised with some alarm it was orange because it was on fire. The couple were in the midst of a journey across the Indian Ocean at the time, making their way from Cochin in India to Phuket in Thailand. It had just gone 10 minutes past 7pm Coordinated Universal Time, or UTC, with their boat heading northeast between the tip of North Sumatra and Great Nicobar Island, when Kate saw the unusual object. As she would later claim on her travel blog a few months after the apparent event, Kate first assumed the object to be a meteor, or perhaps some kind of missile, before realising with horror as it drew nearer that it was in fact a plane tearing through the sky at what must have been barely 4,000 feet, with a trail of thick black smoke billowing out from behind it. It wasn't until the couple arrived in Phuket two days later that they heard the news of the missing plane, and it was only when Kate looked back at the logbook soon after that she made the startling discovery. Ten minutes past UTC on March 7th, the time Kate claimed to have seen a burning plane in the sky, 
also happens to be 10 minutes past 2am on March 8th, Malaysian time. Or rather, precisely the time that Malaysia Airways flight MH370 was picked up on a military radar close to Great Nicobar Island, shortly before it vanished. If Kate's sighting is to be believed, her and Mark's boat would have been almost directly underneath it at the time. Five days after flight MH370 disappeared, the Wall Street Journal published an article detailing the revised information about the plane's last known whereabouts and its unknown turn to either the north or south. Adding further confusion to the situation, the Malaysian government first denied the claim, only to then confirm it two days later. As the loved ones of those on board wrestled with this startling new information, Search and rescue experts assessed the two possible options. Since it was considered highly unlikely that the plane had flown back over China and into Kazakhstan without being picked up on a number of national military radars, that left only one possibility. That due to a strange and unlikely set of circumstances, flight MH370 had flown inexplicably right into the vastness of the wide-open Indian Ocean. Assuming the plane had eventually come down in the water, the likely point of impact was judged to have been somewhere in the southern corridor of the southern Indian Ocean, an area considered to be mostly within Australia's aeronautical and maritime search and rescue region. It was therefore agreed that Australia, in coordination with the Chinese and Malaysian governments, would lead the search. They were joined by ships and aircraft from New Zealand and the US as they focused first on an area roughly 600,000 kilometres squared in size, beginning 3,000 kilometres southwest of Perth. It was an area described by Australian Prime Minister at the time, Tony Abbott, as being as close to nowhere as it's possible to be. In the meantime, as relatives and loved ones demanded more information, Malaysia Airlines, and since it was the national airline, by extension the Malaysian government, were left to make sense of just how on earth the plane had got to where it did. Adding together the fact it had clearly been flown manually for a significant part of the altered route and had not engaged in any mayday communications, not to mention the lack of any credible evidence to suggest it was a terrorist attack, presented a very uncomfortable possibility that either the pilot or co-pilot had deliberately brought the plane down as part of a murder-suicide event. Pilot, 53-year-old Zahari Ahmed Shah from Penang, first joined Malaysia Airlines as a cadet before eventually being promoted to captain of a Boeing 737 in 1991, working his way up to captain of the 777s in 1998. All in all, he had over 18,000 hours of flying experience and was one of the most senior and trusted pilots at Malaysia Airlines. By contrast, his co-pilot, 27-year-old first officer, Fariq Abdul Hamid, was a rookie by comparison, having clocked roughly 2,700 hours of flight time. In fact, flight MH370 was only his sixth in the cockpit of a 777, and his first without the supervision of a training pilot watching over him. The day after the plane's disappearance, 
Malaysian police began an investigation into the men's private lives and their movements leading up to the flight in the hunt for any sign that they might have orchestrated the disaster. Both were found to be in stable relationships, with Captain Shah having been married for years and Farik Hamid reportedly engaged and looking forward to getting married himself. According to their employer, neither had shown any signs of stress in the weeks prior to the flight, nor had any history of drug dependency, anxiety or apathy. CCTV footage was also analysed from the day of the flight for any sign of emotional distress in the body language of the pair. This assessment was also extended to the 10 cabin crew on board, but nothing untoward was discovered. Although it reveals nothing of an individual's precise state of mind, the fact that both men had prestigious jobs for the nation's flagship airline, especially with Hamid only being at the beginning of his career with much to look forward to, was only further reason not to suspect either of any wrongdoing. However, though Hamid was quickly ruled out as a legitimate possibility, when investigators delved a little deeper into Captain Shah's private life, they found not all was quite what it seemed. In truth, although Shah was married, he was now living alone after his wife had moved out of their marital home and into a second home owned by the couple in Kuala Lumpur. All three of their grown-up children had also moved out by this point. An analysis of his social media history also revealed a man a little at odds with his professional persona. At some point, Shah appeared to have become fixated with two teenage sisters, models based in Penang, In the 12 months leading up to the plane's disappearance, Shah left over 90 comments on their Facebook pages, all of which went ignored. Shah was also a vocal critic of the Malaysian government, describing Prime Minister of the time, Najib Razak, on Facebook as a moron, and writing later, rather ominously, on May 23, 2013, There is a rebel in each and every one of us. Let it out. There were question marks too about the nature of a relationship with a 35-year-old woman and mother of three whom Shah had grown close to in the months leading up to his disappearance. The woman claimed later that the pair had met while volunteering during the Malaysian elections and that they were not having an affair, but rather that Shah had seen potential in her and that he wanted to help build a better future for her and her children. Some have suggested, however, that perhaps her interpretation of the relationship and his actual hopes for it were some distance apart. It all seemed to paint a picture of a man who'd perhaps grown frustrated with his lot and who was ultimately very lonely and sad. As the search continued for any sign of debris from the plane, numerous large objects were spotted with satellite imaging, including one piece thought to be 79 feet long, but by the time boats and aircraft were dispatched to the area, the objects were gone. On March 24th, Malaysia's Prime Minister, Najib Razak, publicly announced what had long been suspected, that flight MH370 had most likely crashed in the southern Indian Ocean, and there were no survivors. Then, on April 12th, startling news is revealed that a signal coming from co-pilot Fariq Abdul Hamid's phone was picked up 
sometime around 2am Malaysian time, just minutes before the plane vanished from radar screens for the second and final time. Experts theorised that a drop in the plane's altitude as it flew close to Penang Island may have enabled a mobile signal to reach it. However, since it wasn't clear if Hamid had attempted a call himself, or merely that his phone had somehow been switched back on at this time, there was little to garner from the information. As the days turned to weeks with nothing to show for it, the search of the ocean's surface was ended in late April. Any chance of recovering the plane's black box was also swiftly dwindling, since in the event of a crash, they were only required to continue emitting a signal for up to 30 days afterwards. The main focus of the search then turned to the ocean deep. However, with so little known about the area and any data they did have of such low resolution, scientists had to perform a bathymetric survey before they could even begin. The process involves the use of an echo sounder beacon being towed underwater by boat using sonar technology to ping down and receive back an image of the seabed. It is a painstaking process. With the first basic survey complete in May, the more precise underwater search for the plane was resumed. Then in July, a second extraordinary Malaysia Airways disaster occurred when another Boeing 777, flight MH17, carrying 298 passengers and crew, was hit by a surface-to-air missile while flying above eastern Ukraine, killing all on board. The missile was found to have been launched from an area of the country being occupied by pro-Russian forces. The Russian government denied all knowledge of the attack. Aside from being an obvious tragedy for those on board and a further PR disaster for Malaysia Airways, the event was however unlinked to flight MH370. And so the search continued, week after week, month after month, but still no sign of the plane was discovered on January 29, 2015, having gathered no conclusive evidence, the Malaysian government declared the disappearance simply an accident with no survivors and the search was paused due to bad weather. This year I'm refocusing on what it means to take care of myself and it couldn't be easier than with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious food all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. It takes literally minutes to prepare and I never have to think twice if the food I'm eating is good for me. Daily Harvest works directly with organic farms to freeze their ingredients right on the farm at peak ripeness to lock in nutrients and taste. They never use preservatives, added sugar or artificial anything. Personally, I'm a big fan of the tart cherry and raspberry smoothies, which are the perfect start to the day. With Daily Harvest, there's something for any time. Smoothies for breakfast, crisp flatbreads for lunch or dinner and food that's perfect for cooler weather too like their perfectly roasted harvest bowls and soups. With Daily Harvest, I'm enjoying undeniably delicious, clean food without any of the prep. And whether you're looking to have your daily dose of fruits and veggies, or just want to have a little more time back on your hands, you can too. Get started today. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code UNEXPLAINED to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code UNEXPLAINED for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. That's dailyharvest.com. In early 2015, Blaine Gibson, 
who'd sold his parents' home back in Carmel, California, some time ago, was living in Laos, overseeing the construction of a restaurant on the Mekong River. Throughout it all, he'd continued to keep a close eye on any MH370 news, even joining a number of Facebook groups to discuss the subject with others. In March 2015, outside a large shopping mall in Kuala Lumpur, a ceremony was held to commemorate the victims of the tragic event, but also to agitate for further investigations. At the back of the stage, a large poster carried the silhouetted image of a Boeing 777, accompanied by the words, Where? Who? Why? How? Alongside Impossible, Unprecedented, and Vanished. A crowd of hundreds had gathered to watch, and standing at the back, behind the mall, was Blaine Gibson. He, like most of the attendees, had openly wept when Grace Subathirai Nathan had taken to the stage to describe what she loved most about her mother, who had been lost with all the others on the plane. Blaine had been so moved by Grace's words that when he saw her afterwards he felt compelled to offer her a hug, to which she gladly accepted. The pair would go on to become good friends, but what struck him most as he watched her speech, unable to ignore the large poster behind her, was that single word that seemed to stick out more prominently than any other. Vanished. What the missing passengers' loved ones needed, more than anything, he thought, was something tangible. Without this, they would remain forever in limbo, imprisoned by an impossible hope that there might yet be survivors, but equally unable to move forward and begin to come to terms with the more tragic and likely scenario. And so he got to thinking, why hadn't anything of the plane been found yet? If it had indeed crashed into the Indian Ocean and disintegrated on impact as most suspected, could it be, he thought, that the experts were essentially looking in the wrong place? Four thousand kilometres to the west of the underwater search area on Wednesday, July 29, 2015, a beach cleanup crew were busily scouring the stony beach along the coastline of Saint Andre, a town in the northeast of the French overseas region of Reunion. The crew, led by 46-year-old Johnny Beg, had been up since 7 a.m., gathering all the usual bits of detritus that get swept in from the ocean, plastic bottles broken nylon fishing nets and various other pieces of mostly plastic. With the heat of the day beginning to rise, the group took a short break around nine, giving Johnny just enough time to head off in search of a stone that he could use as a pestle for grinding spices. After a few moments scanning the pebbles, he noticed something unusual rocking by the waterline as shallow waves lapped softly against it. The object, roughly one and a half metres squared in size, was grey in colour and appeared to be made of a combination of aluminium and some other fibrous material. It looked a lot like part of an airplane wing. Johnny called for his colleagues to join him and together they hauled the item from the beach. The piece, along with the tattered remains of a fabric suitcase, also found by Johnny, was eventually sent to Toulouse in France the following day to be analysed. And then, on August 5th, 2015, the news was announced. The object was identified as a flapperon, a section of airplane wing used to control speed and lift. 
and it had come from flight MH370. The flapperon was the first physical evidence that the search crews had been right to suspect the plane had ended up in the Indian Ocean. As Blaine had begun to suspect, what they seemed not to have paid much attention to was how if the plane had broken up into pieces, much of the debris would have long been carried away from the search area by ocean currents. By the time Johnny Begg had found the first piece, Blaine had already travelled to the coasts of Myanmar, the Maldives and Mauritius in his own effort to find some. And though he'd come up empty-handed so far, Begg's discovery confirmed he was on the right track. For friends and family, however, despite it being ultimately a welcome turn of events, the Flapperon's discovery was a hammer blow. Concrete proof that whatever had happened to the plane, their loved ones had not survived. After flying to Reunion to speak directly with Johnny Begg, Blaine then travelled to Australia to consult with two oceanographers to determine where would be the most likely place for any debris to turn up. They concluded the coasts of Madagascar and Mozambique. And so it was that in February 2016, Blaine found himself sat in the bow of a small fishing boat just off the coast of Villanculus in Mozambique, shielding his eyes from the spray as he and his guide Suleiman headed out toward a nearby sandbank. Blaine squinted toward the horizon, under the brim of his fedora, clasping down firmly on the top of it to stop it blowing away as they shot over the water. Arriving soon after, Suleiman secured the vessel and invited Blaine to jump out to begin their search. They hadn't been looking long when Suleiman shouted over to Blaine, holding a weathered, two feet wide, greyish-looking object above his head. It was only when Blaine got closer he could clearly see the words no step stenciled onto it. Blaine delivered the now infamous no step piece of debris, later determined to be a horizontal stabiliser panel to the Australian consul in Mozambique. After being flown to Australia, further analysis suggested it was in all likelihood a part of MH370. When news of Gibson's efforts to aid the search went public soon after, he was widely hailed as a hero. Having now unequivocally found himself tied up with the story, Blaine was soon introduced to an entirely different aspect of the planet's interest in what had happened to the plane. It was something he'd noticed seeds of in those first Facebook groups he'd joined soon after the plane disappeared, but was by now fostering entire mythologies of its own. At first, he was merely chastised by people online for exploiting the misery of the families linked to the disaster. Others derided him for his seemingly egotistical efforts to needlessly involve himself in the search. But most, in what seems to have become a feature of modern life, simply didn't believe him. Some accused him of being a stooge, believing he was a plant for the Russian government. Others that he was in fact working for the American government, Either way, all were convinced he was part of an elaborate global cover-up to hide what had really taken place. And soon, all manner of theories were being posited, and not always from the more extreme ends of online culture. The plane had been taken by a Russian special ops team, 
suggested one writer in a New York Magazine article. Others believed the US military shot it down after it was spotted heading toward a US military base in the Indian Ocean. Rupert Murdoch even offered his theory that it had indeed been hijacked as a part of a jihadist plot to cause trouble for the Chinese government. Others suggested it had been captured by aliens, or that it had simply vanished into a wormhole and been transported to another time. And yet, despite Blaine finding three more pieces on the northeastern shore of Madagascar in June 2016, nothing of the pieces revealed anything to comprehensively discredit any one of the theories about what had happened. Then, in July 2016, came an incredible revelation. The news was confirmed by Australian officials, who until then had, for sensitive diplomatic reasons, agreed to keep it quiet on behalf of the Malaysian government. It concerned the discovery made by Malaysian police a few days after the plane disappeared of an elaborate computer setup for the Microsoft Flight Simulator program. The system had been installed in Captain Zahari Shah's home, complete with multiple screens and manual controls, all designed to precisely mimic the cockpit of a Boeing 777. There was nothing unusual about it as such, since it is something that many pilots do for themselves, to keep sharp and busy between flights. But what was intriguing was the single set of deleted files that appeared to relate to a trip that Shah programmed himself into the simulator back in February 2014, a month before the fateful flight. Unable to get more information themselves, the Malaysian police sent the files to the FBI for further analysis, and what they found astounded them. In total, they uncovered six deleted data points, each containing a record of the plane's speed, altitude and direction at the time, along with a number of other parameters. Incredibly, the route Shah had plotted followed almost precisely the route taken by MH370 as measured by the Inmarsat data readings. In short, in what seemed too much of a coincidence for some, only weeks before MH370 disappeared over what many have calculated to be the middle of the Indian Ocean, Zahari Shah had flown almost the exact same course on his flight simulator. The flight paths were not precisely identical, but the similarity was undoubtedly jarring, and though some have taken this as conclusive proof that Captain Shah was responsible all along, others have cautioned against jumping to conclusions. The following June, as Blaine Gibson continued to find more and more pieces of the plane in Madagascar, he made arrangements to create an official channel to take care of transporting the pieces to Malaysia for further analysis. After liaising with the Malaysian consul, it was agreed that all pieces should be delivered to the honorary consul to Madagascar, Zahid Raza, who in turn would personally supervise their delivery to Kuala Lumpur. But then, something unexpected occurred. On August 24th, shortly after overseeing the transfer of six pieces found by Blaine, Zahid Raza was travelling through the island's capital, Antananarivo, in his car, when an individual pulled up beside his vehicle on a motorbike and opened fire, killing him instantly in a hail of bullets. 
though many were quick to note that Raza had made numerous enemies during his time in Madagascar. The incident did little to quieten the growing number of conspiracy theories surrounding the plane's disappearance. Blaine Gibson, for one, was convinced the assassination was connected. In response, he stopped disclosing his travel plans to anyone that didn't need to know, stopped using email, and rarely spoke to people on the phone. He even took to regularly swapping out his SIM card for extra precaution. He also became convinced he was being followed and photographed. With a renewed sense of purpose, however, Blaine continued on his quest. Meanwhile, the official search of the ocean floor, in the hope of finding the fuselage or the plane's black box, also continued on. Despite covering an area roughly 208,000 kilometres squared in size, nothing was found, and there was further disappointment when it was revealed that the batteries in the plane's black box had died and not been replaced before the plane had even taken off, removing once and for all any hope of ever finding it. In May 2018, the official search was called off. Though private searches continue with the help of a group of committed independent researchers that have become known as the Independent Group, there remains no further evidence to explain the event. By September 2019, Blaine Gibson had been responsible for finding roughly a third of all pieces of MH370 debris. A 2019 study conducted by the University of Miami Rosenthal School of Marine and Atmospheric Science suggested the most probable crash site in the Indian Ocean was at 25 degrees south in latitude, some distance further north of where most of the official underwater search had been conducted. In March 2020, some friends and relatives of those lost on board the flight gathered together at the Marriott Hotel at Putrajaya in Malaysia to commemorate the 6th anniversary of the plane's disappearance. And though many remain committed to continuing the search for their loved ones, others have done what they can to find ways of carrying on. In February 2020, after six grief-stricken years, Danica Weeks, whose husband Paul was lost on the flight, found love again, remarrying in a private wedding ceremony on Australia's Sunshine Coast as her and Paul's two sons watched on beside her. While every Saturday in Handan, China, farmer Li Ariao finds a quiet moment to step out into the fields surrounding his home to make a call on his mobile phone. Taking it from his pocket, he types out his missing son's long disconnected number, then presses dial and holds it gently up to his ear. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained the book and audiobook featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. 
please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far... I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.